Welcome to the ABCs of Matrescence. We are Emma and Mackenzie, two mamas to toddler boys. Here we chat all things real motherhood from A to Z. Matrescence is the process of becoming a mother, and that is exactly what we are here to explore in every episode. Thank you guys so much for joining us today. This is episode 12. We appreciate y'all listening in last week as we discussed um, our experiences introducing solids to our little boys. So that was a fun chit chat. And we are going to keep on the foodie train today. So I am riding solo. Me and Mackenzie are uh, doing some interviews one-on-one just to make life easier. And you know how it is with babies. It's just complicated uh, timing schedules. So I am luckily joined by an awesome guest today. Today we're here to chat with registered dietitian Lindsay Lusson, and we're going to be diving into um, a lot of things regarding food, balancing uh, exercise. She has also been experienced with hypothalamic amenorrhea, as we talked to Dr. Rinaldi about in a previous episode, and how it relates to menstrual cycle, trying to conceive postpartum, and all of that good stuff. So she's going to jump in with me today. So welcome, Lindsay. Thank you for hanging out. Thanks so much, Emma. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to kind of chat a little bit today about all the things. All right. So we are going to jump into some highs and lows. um, But first, I just kind of wanted to touch on how are you doing in the COVID world? So we are obviously all still living in it. Although I will say so we're recording this on May 7th, just so there's context and things are starting to come out of like the darkness of it all, I I guess, sort of, kind of. It's all a social experiment at this point, at least here where we live in Georgia. Well, we're lunatics in Georgia and everything's opening back up. You can at least go bowling right now. That's the first thing they reopen. So there's that. But how are you doing just in general in this whole situation? Yeah, doing good overall. Um, Similar to Georgia, I'm located in Texas and and we kind of got the okay from our governor last week for certain businesses to reopen. And and that's funny you bring up bowling alleys because movie theaters were open are now opened and that was kind of my first thought is like really like this is these are the things that we're prioritizing. Yeah, it was weird because, I mean, I wasn't totally opposed to them starting to open up some businesses. Like, at some point, it's going to happen. But when they frame it as essential businesses, and one of the first things they listed was a bowling alley, I was like, mm, really? That's what we're going to classify? So, anyway. yeah, It's, it's pretty funny. Weird. I wonder how many people are going bowling and going to the movies right now. I wish I actually knew more on that. I'd be interested. Yeah, I don't know about that. I do know that my husband went to go pick up um, some takeout food from a Mexican food restaurant um, last Friday, and he said that the line was out the door. Granted, they're only able to seat at 25% capacity, but the fact that there are people that are itching to get out and wanting to go and do things, um, I'm sure it's good yeah, just for mental health for you know those people who are feeling really boxed in. I get it. Well, I'm I'm a personal trainer and our gym opened back up this week and I'm not back in the gym quite yet um, for a variety of reasons, mainly childcare, but also, I don't know. I'm not, I work with a lot of older clientele and I'm not Mm. quite prepared to risk that yet just personally, but it, it was interesting to see how many people were in the gym. And today, wow. like I looked at, we have a small, it's a small boutique gym. And I also train in a one-on-one studio. So it would just be me and a client. I'm not in a big box gym or anything mm-hmm. like that. So it's a different, different environment. But I was actually surprised to see that like 50 people checked into the gym today. Wow. So I guess, I guess people are getting back out and about. So I'm still kind of living in our hole. But, um, <laughs> we're kind of, we're kind of low key anyway. We're not the social butterfly. So it's not particularly out of our normal. So. 
So let's jump into some highs and lows. So Lindsay, why don't you share a little bit of what's been on your high list this week and what's been lows? Yeah, I would just say the high is um, we've actually been fortunate enough to have childcare for Lily during this whole thing. Um, we moved cities. We moved from Dallas, Texas to Waco, Texas, where I am from, um, right in the middle of March. So I think it was kind of right before that one weekend where everything essentially went on lockdown. Um, and so that's been a little strange um, being in a new city, I would say that that's kind of been one of the challenges of everything. Um, for me personally, is just um, I am a social person and being in a new city, my um, husband and I were looking forward to being able to get out and doing things and getting involved in church and meeting people and none of that's been able to happen. Um, yeah, but everyone is healthy and happy. And so, you know, we are grateful for that. Well, I hope, you know, as we ease into the real full swing of summer, maybe that that those options will start to become more available. It's really kind of hard to even see, I think, too far in the future. Um, You know, everybody's starting to branch back out. But what will really be a return to normal and how will that be? I'm not sure. Yeah. So I guess we'll see. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I would just say touching on my highs and lows real quick. um, My high is going to be. Um, my kid has just been super cute this week. I don't know what's gotten into him, but he's just been a little cuddly giggle monster and has started his favorite thing is hold mommy's hand, Aww. which we haven't been doing. And now all of a sudden he wants to hold mommy's hand. I everywhere. love it. That is it's so sweet. Stinking adorable. But yeah, he's just been a rock star this week. We had some rough sleep the couple weeks before. I think he was just going through one of those leaps or he also got two molars and, you know, all those developmental things. Um, But suddenly he is sleeping and also just being a sweet little cuddly, adorable kiddo. And so I'm really grateful for that. It's just definitely been a high. And I would just say my low has been, so I'm going to be real um, and, and answer this honestly, this is the second time me and Lindsay are recording this because <laughs> we recorded it last week and technology did not work. So we're going to go with practice makes perfect. But that was definitely a bummer because we had a really great conversation the first time around. And it's just annoying to have to deal with technology stuff and lose valuable time as mamas. We don't get a ton of that evening hour. So, you know, having to repeat ourselves is aggravating. But we're here and I'm very grateful she said yes to take two. Absolutely. It allowed for time for us to connect again, which is pretty cool. So I am game. Yes. Could could be a worse way to spend an hour in the evening. Right. So, at least I hope so. <laughs> All right. So we'll jump into our interview a little bit. So just tell us a little bit about yourself, who you are, what do you do, kiddos, all the all the good stuff. Yeah. So um, I, I mentioned just a second ago that I did recently move back to Waco, Texas. That's where I'm from. Um, and I've worked as a registered dietitian for nine years. I currently work full time in corporate wellness as a health coach. And I actually just started my own business at the beginning of 2020 to support women with hypothalamic amenorrhea to get their period back for fertility and find food freedom. And how old is your little one? And I have a toddler who is 20 months. So it's crazy to think that she's she's actually closer closer to to two. two. Yep. than than one. And it feels like her first birthday was like last month. Oh, what a time warp. It's so funny. Time flies with them. because I don't know. A year in adult life doesn't seem like anything, but they're just totally different beings from one year to the next or one month to the next. They change so much so quickly. 
Yeah. So what originally interests you in becoming a registered dietitian? Um, yeah. Tell us a little bit about that journey. Yeah. So um, I think it was kind of latter part of high school. So I was always kind of an active um, kid in high school, played sports, ended up um, my junior year of high school deciding I was not into sports and um, and, and kind of, you know, let all those things go to spend some time with my friends. And as a result, I kind of put on some weight, which was not any big deal at all. Um, but around the same time, my parents started to go to a gym regularly and focusing on their health and fitness. And I was inspired to kind of start a little um, health journey of my own. So I began to work out, you know, five days a week and started paying attention to what I was eating. And in the process of all that, I really fell in love with fitness and nutrition. So when it came time for me to go off to college the next year, it only seemed fitting to major in nutrition and the rest is kind of history from there. Awesome. So I know me and you personally, we actually connected. So I got to know Lindsay. We were in a hypothalamic amenorrhea group um, from Dr. Rinaldi's group. So we had her on a earlier podcast, episode three, where she discussed her group um, based on her book, No Period, Now What? And that's how we connected. So you have personally gone through your own health journey. So can you, do you mind sharing a little bit about that? Yeah. So just when I started that kind of personal health journey, when I was um, in high school of 17, 18 years old, um, I started doing Weight Watchers. It was just kind of a popular diet at the time that some girlfriends of mine had been doing. And I think that at the time, most people kind of thought that it was like the safest or healthiest way to kind of lose weight. And it, you know, it's a lifestyle, it's not a diet. And so, um, you know, my, my parents were on board with me doing it. And um, I just have a type A personality. And so once I started it, I wanted to do it perfectly. And I lost close to 15 pounds in about three months. And when I did, I also lost my period. It's so interesting. I really do think that type A personality can be kind of a negative when it comes to women and dieting and that kind of stuff just seeing so many women in our online facebook group i would say most would describe themselves as that type a mckenzie and myself included absolutely so it can lead you in very good directions and you can be very driven and you know perfectionist but when it comes to diet and fitness it's not always the best combination right right and so you know unfortunately for me that experience was kind of you know brushed under the rug when i saw um, my primary care physician. And then eventually I saw a couple of OBGYNs who kind of just said, this isn't that big of a deal. Let's put you on birth control. This will protect your bones. And so for a really long time, like I didn't really understand why I wasn't getting my period. And it wasn't until much, much, much later in life when I finally found the book, No Period, Now What? And read it and had probably a 95% certainty of my self-diagnosis. Um, and it, it took me a while to just, you know, um, personally to get in a place where I was ready to commit to going all in. Um, but once I did, um, you know, things kind of worked for me like textbook. I actually got my period back in less than a month. And three, week, three months after that, I was able to get pregnant naturally without fertility assistance, even though I was told by multiple doctors that I was going to need IVF to get pregnant. Oh, wow. That's amazing. And I love hearing, I don't know, it's so interesting to hear doctor's recommendations and how much we both, for example, learned through reading Dr. Rinaldi's book that was just, I feel like the doctor should know these kind of things. Like I literally took that book to my doctor and they were like oh 
yeah, maybe birth control isn't the best solution. And there was part of me that's just like, oh, wait, aren't you the doctor here? So it's fascinating to hear that Stephanie, it wasn't just my experience that that was kind of the go-to answer from your medical provider. I love that you gave um, the book to your doctor. I have been meaning to um, actually schedule an appointment with my doctor in Dallas, which I don't live in Dallas anymore. Um, but just to go up there and visit with her and give her the book and like write down my email address in the book to be like, if you ever have anyone else who fits this mold like let them know that there is another way you know I was very kind of nervous too because I mean there you look at a doctor in high regard you know I was trying to be respectful but after reading all the information I, I just was kind of baffled by some of their recommendations just even you know needing to have a bleed before they would start me on some of the protocols and stuff that just did not it just wasn't necessary um and so i wasn't trying to be argumentative you know i just learned to become my own advocate based on a lot of the information that i read and so and they were very receptive i was honestly very pleased and they they told me that they really read the book and took it to heart and have changed the way they do some of their practices so that's amazing that you've had that impact great that's great to just be okay to step up and say, you know, you're not trying to fight, get into a fight or anything. But yeah, be your own advocate because you never know what a difference it could also make in somebody else's journey and how a doctor practices. So Absolutely. that's very cool. And I love that you're going to go do that. Yeah. So, so after you got through HA, you were able to get pregnant naturally, which is amazing. Um, has the way you've changed working with clients as, as you adjusted that mindset? Because I know being kind of a mainstream dietitian, it can be a lot of pushing a diet. That's that's how they practice in general. So what does that look like for you as you've adapted? Yeah, absolutely. I would say that for majority of my career as a dietitian, I have been kind of pro-intentional weight loss. Um, I've always loved the idea of intuitive eating, but kind of didn't really feel like I fit in to that. Like I didn't feel like it could work for me. Um, Through the process of recovering from HA, um, I've really adopted intuitive eating and have really seen it for what it is and feel like it is adaptable to any person in any situation. And it's definitely kind of transformed the way that I work um, with clients in my corporate job and also has inspired me to, you know, start my own business where I really work with women on healing their relationship with food um, and and finding food freedom. And and when I use that word food freedom, I like to describe it as, you know, eating normally, thinking about the way that maybe even like your toddler or your preschooler eats. Kids have a great way of you know, knowing what they need, eating when they're hungry and stopping when they're full. And that, you know, is something that I think we lose over time as a result of just, you know, the media going on diets and just diet culture in general, telling us that we're never, you know, lean enough or strong enough or thin enough. And um, so, yeah, I mean, I would say that my own health journey with HA and my own recovery with HA has definitely transformed um, my kind of philosophy regarding nutrition and health. Do you ever look back and kind of cringe at some of the things you used to say to clients? Oh, I only say that because 100%. I know as a trainer. Yeah, I've gone through the same. hundred percent. I mean, at the beginning, I was okay. We gotta, you know, you gotta burn it to earn it. Yeah, terrible things that I was like, you know, but it was what I was trained in. It's just well, that was what we did. And so, and then going through my own journey, so I'm sure you kind of had the same. And it's hard to you have to learn to meet people where they are as well because often people come to you and say. I want to lose weight and you have to find that middle ground of 
being there as a support, but not leading them down a, a negative path. Absolutely. I was going to say, you know, if anything, it gives you a little bit of grace with people who probably aren't there yet. Um, and, you know, maybe they'll never get there. And I think that that's a good point that you said about meeting people where they're at. But um, yeah, I think that knowing that even not that long ago, I was more pro-intentional weight loss and, um, you know, work out harder, you know, count your calories type stuff. Um, knowing, you know, that I've been there, I think that being on the other side of everything kind of adds a little bit of value to, you know, the other philosophy. Um, but I understand where people are coming from that are still kind of in that different realm of, you know, health and fitness. Yeah. Well, and it makes you so relatable to me to clients. Cause I think when I'm honest with people and tell them, I don't, I, I struggled too. You know, it wasn't just like I woke up and I was like, great, I have it all together. So I'm going to tell you what to do now. You know, I've definitely gone through my own and I think it's really relatable that you've done the same and that you can share that, that experience and education and knowledge with, with your clients. So that's awesome. So let's dive into just some of the basics regarding women's nutrition, dieting and body image and kind of today's society. So in your current RD role, you primarily work with women who are trying to regain their cycles, which often with the goal of becoming pregnant. Um, so as we touched on in the previous episode I mentioned with Dr. Rinaldi, most women with HA are in some type of calorie deficit. So can you explain a little bit what a calorie deficit is and how it might have an impact on women's fertility? Yeah. So a calorie deficit in the simplest terms is eating less than your body burns via just your metabolism and also um, intentional exercise. And a calorie deficit is the primary way that weight loss happens through dieting. Um, what happens when a woman loses her period related to a calorie deficit? It's typically because a woman is operating in a very large calorie deficit. So think larger than 500 calories per day calorie deficit. Um, and she's been doing that for a long amount of time. Sometimes it doesn't take women a long time to lose their period. You know, using myself as an example, I was on a diet for three or four months and, and I lost my period for a very long time. Everyone's a little bit more, some women are more sensitive to losing their period and some women, you know, can operate in large calorie deficits and do a lot of exercise and never lose their period. So there is a little bit of a genetic component. Um, but I would say that if you are operating in a large calorie deficit, it's, it's definitely not healthy, even if you aren't losing your period. Um, essentially, it's just putting your body in a super stressed out state. And because it's stressed out, it starts to shut down unnecessary body systems, one of those things being your menstrual cycle. And it does it in an effort to conserve energy. Yeah, I think that's super interesting. I've always kind of related it to, um, you know, your body needs enough energy to prioritize pumping your heart and pumping your lungs and, you know, literally functioning. So at the end of the rope, there is your menstrual cycle. Mm -hmm. So when you don't have enough, it that's the last thing or the first thing that's going to go because it is not technically necessary to live. Exactly. But it is, you know, necessary to be of more optimal health. <laughs> right. Great, great way to explain it. So what are some of the individual factors that go into how many calories a person might need? Yeah, so just like every woman is a little bit unique in the sense of whether or not, you know, operating on a calorie deficit would trigger the loss of her menstrual cycle, her calorie needs are going to be very different. Um, you know, my calorie needs are different than yours, Emma, your needs are different than, you know, another woman. And so, um, 
oftentimes we think, I think probably from diet culture that you can plug your metrics into a online calculator and it spits out a number and that's the number of calories you need. And there's so much more that goes into it. So obviously height and weight do matter. Also your age, your body composition. So if you have more muscle mass, you're going to require more calories at rest than someone who doesn't have a lot of muscle mass. Also genetics. Some people just have faster metabolism. Some people just have slower metabolisms. Um, the climate that you kind of operate in, high, um, kind of more humid and hot climates um, will raise your metabolism. And then obviously intentional exercise. If you're hitting the gym, you're going to be burning some more calories there. Um, also levels of stress can increase your metabolism and then hormones. So a woman's actually going to need significantly more calories in the latter part of her cycle after she ovulates than she does in the beginning, right after her period and leading up to the few days before ovulation. Oh, that's so interesting and a good thing for women to remember. So, you know, if you find yourself the week before your period having those extra hunger pains, it, it actually could be a hormonal response. And exactly. Just you uh, craving, craving the extra chocolate there. So that's awesome. It's so interesting when you talk about those online calorie calculators. So you've heard of Noom, I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, isn't that what it's called? Yeah, I uh, I kind of I heard some people talking about it the other day, and so I signed up just out of curiosity. They had like a little free thing because they supposedly set you up with an uh, RD or a health coach or something. And I mean, the generic they automatically, despite me mentioning that I worked out, you know, five or six times a week, I was super active, all these things, twelve hundred calories, and I was just like. Wow. Noom is one of those sneaky ones because I think that it's advertised to, it's not a diet, it's a lifestyle, but like, yeah, it's advertised as anti diet. Yeah, you put me on a 1200 calorie plan. Like, no, like, absolutely not. I was just curious because I had a few clients messaging me and they were like, but they said it's a lifestyle and it's going to be healthier. And I was like, yeah, let's see how much I believe. And I and I even messaged the health coach, I, you know, kind of went back and forth. And I was like, so really, this is what you're saying? She was like, well, yeah, that's just what we recommend. And I was just like, oh, okay, wow, next. Yeah, I, I, I left a not so kind review and moved on. But still, well, they need to hear so. it. Yeah, exactly. So from working with so many female clients, what do you kind of find are the dietary trends that can be so detrimental to reproductive and overall health? Yeah, two that I think are super popular right now that are are not good for your hormones are um, intermittent fasting and then super low carb diets like keto. Um, You know, any sort of low low calorie fad diet too. So think like you know, diets that have you eliminating whole food groups or only eating like five foods, like that's, that's not very good for your hormones. And then also living off cayenne, pepper and lemon juice. Yeah, that's a great example. Yeah, something, something like that. And then also um, juice cleanses. Um, They are not providing your body with enough nutrition to um, have healthy hormones. Yeah, it is interesting. It's so interesting watching diets come in and out because keto was popular, I mean, like 20 years ago and like bodybuilding or something like that. So it's so funny that it's just making its well, its rounds again. And Keto, I mean, Atkins was keto. It's just re, yeah, it's yeah. rebranded. <laughs> yeah, totally, totally. And it's so unfortunate because they also get advertised because for a small group of the population, that can be medically beneficial. But that's a very, very tiny amount of the population and not women just looking to diet. Yeah. So the keto diet was actually designed to um, treat epilepsy in patients. And it's kind of like 
to this day, nobody necessarily knows like the science behind why it works, but it does work. But it was never designed to be a weight loss diet. It was designed to treat epilepsy and it has been kind of adapted um, to people um, using it now as a, as a weight loss tool. Yeah. And I think it's just a sign that if you are, and I've, again, I've been here, so I'm just speaking. I know the cayenne pepper one because I did it. And, oh, you did? Okay. I, I mean, and by I said I did it, I think I lasted four hours before I went to like Taco Bell drive-thru or something like that. Like, right. I, I never really survived on one of those very long. I'm not, I'm not much of a rule follower. So <laughs> those type of restrictions, like other people imposing them on me was never something that sat well with me, but it is really interesting. So I just think if you're that person that you're, you're looking at this or you're listening to this and going, well, I have done the juice cleanse and I have done the keto and I was going to try intermittent fasting. Like, there's your red flag. Maybe it's time to, to step away from the trends. So Right. Yeah. So how about the term clean eating? That's so popular and especially like me being in the fitness space. Everybody talks about eating clean. Do you find that some of these, you know, quote unquote, healthy eating plans are really just another way to live in a calorie deficit that's not necessary to extreme and really is kind of a form of some eating disordered behavior? Yeah, absolutely. I think the, the term clean eating um, is, is really popular and to some people, it's just so vague, right? Like some people, it means not eating processed foods. Some people, it means eating more fruits and vegetables. But I think that the term clean eating, implying that certain foods are clean, certain foods are unclean, is a bit disordered in the sense that you can definitely kind of create a really unhealthy mental relationship with food. Um, and it's a little bit sneaky because I would say that wellness culture, different from diet culture, but same idea, wellness culture actually promotes this. You should be eating clean. You should be avoiding, you know, processed sugar. You should be doing that. And so somebody could be, you know, really buying into all of this information that's fed to us so often all over the place and really have no idea that they're under eating. So to your question, absolutely, somebody could be following a clean eating plan and not necessarily identify it as a diet or even identify it as restrictive, but still, you know, be under eating and be causing, you know, damage to their hormones. Yeah, and I think any time that you start to become fearful of, you know, food, you know, being, and, and I, again, speaking to my own, I definitely fell into like the clean eating camp. And so when you become fearful of eating anything out of a package or, you know, eating somewhere where, yes, they might have snuck in some sugar and that's not perfectly clean or, oh, you ate a piece of bread and that's not clean, that's not a whole food, just some of those triggers are really you know, something to keep an eye out for. Yeah, absolutely. That that reminds me, I have done um, a couple of Whole30s, which is another oh, popular yeah. diet. It's a sneaky one. And even had, you know, had read their, their book, It Starts With Food, in detail, being a dietitian and reading it and like really questioning things that I learned and being like, oh my God, like, you know, is, is this bad for you? Like, are these foods causing inflammation? Is that, am I addicted to food? And it's really, really tricky because some of the way that, you know, some of these eating plans and diets are worded is like, they really make you feel like you are the problem. And I think that anytime that a diet makes you feel like it's your fault, that's a red flag that it is not a healthy or sustainable plan. And just so you know, like you quote unquote failing at a diet has absolutely nothing to do with you and it has everything to do with the fact that that diet is not sustainable. Oh my gosh, preach. I could not have said it any better. That is amazing. And I'm completely with you. I'm literally sitting here staring at it. It starts with food on my bookshelf. So You have it there, too. There done that, my it's friend. so, it is interesting. And it sucks you in. It but really just because it's interesting, interesting doesn't mean it's yeah. true. 
right? It it's is not fact. Very well and marketed. I reading about the authors of that one, they have no nutrition background. No, they like, don't. It, I think none. zero. I think that the husband. They, actually, I think they ended up going through a divorce. I, I don't even know who they did. who even mm-hmm. has the rights. But I think the husband was a physical therapist, which is great that you have you know a, a science and medical background, but that's that's not nutrition. Yeah, nope, not the same thing. So just be very weary of of anything that is so dogmatic that again, yes, you know, knocks out whole food groups. That yes, has these lists of good versus bad and that kind of thing. Um, that that's a big red flag. So good point. So you know, speaking of, we kind of live in the age of of Instagram and what people are sharing and everybody posting about their whole thirty that they're doing or their <laughs> intermittent fasting or their, you know, I don't even know what people are. Doing. I started to say bulletproof coffee. I think that fad's disappeared, but who knows. Um, do you really find that that online comparison of seeing what everybody else is eating or doing or exercising is increasing women's struggle with their own body image? I think it totally depends on where you're at mentally, and it probably does more harm than good. Um, I think that just social media being what it is, um, a highlighted reel, people are known to post um, things that seem are seemingly perfect so when someone does like for instance like a full day of eating maybe that really is how they eat but but maybe it isn't right maybe they knew that they were filming it that day and so their meals are super healthy and have vegetables and are really pretty and maybe they're not you know recording the little bites and snacks and dips that they're having in between but a viewer sees that and thinks oh my gosh this person this is how they eat like I should. I, I can't believe that I eat so much more than they do. So I do think that you could very easily get caught into um, the comparison trap from things like that. And um, it is something I try to be transparent about if I ever post a meal or something is I usually kind of try to remind people that like, I also had, you know, a handful of chips before I ate this, or I had a slice of pizza before I showed you the two pieces of pizza <laughs> that I just had. And so I think that if someone can be transparent or um, for somebody who is a um, is promoting, you know, women eating normally and um, um, intuitive eating, I think sometimes it can be um, inspiring to other women to see real women eat real food in real portions. Yeah, it's it is such a fine line because I I also love I love getting inspiration from other people's meals because I definitely get in a rut and so I'll see something and I'll be like oh that looks delicious but it is very easy to look at her plate and be like okay she's super fit she's super this whatever and look at what she's eating and say well if I eat that way then I'm gonna look like that or oh she only ate one piece of avocado toast and I just ate two you know you just don't yeah. Know the whole view there and I mean I even I'm friends with a couple of people that do food blogs and they've constantly told me that they will make a salad and only put half of it in the bowl because they don't want it to be overflowing they want it to look clean they want well it to sure nice. yeah and then they eat the rest afterwards yeah so you just really don't have the whole the whole picture there and I'll also just say you know if you're triggered by those accounts stop following them. yes That's absolutely social media is you are in control of of what you see ultimately that is some of our responsibility as the viewers and so if you're following these accounts that don't make you feel great about yourself that make you feel insecure that make you question yourself click unfollow that includes me so you know just just an fyi yeah same and and always give people permission to unfollow and um yeah, absolutely. You know, what you see in your social media feed may be affecting you in ways that you don't even know. Um, I know sometimes I'll go through and do like a social media cleanse and I'll unfollow accounts that I'm like, gosh, they really don't really bring a lot of 
positivity to my day or I don't know what it is but this account just like doesn't make me feel good about myself and I'll go through and I'll unfollow and then like a couple weeks later I'll be like I don't I feel so much better. Like you, sometimes you don't even realize the impact that it's just having on you um, in certain ways. Yep. I think if, if your social media, even if you don't necessarily acknowledge it, if it's bringing you a little bit of that anxiety or stress or, you know, it doesn't make you feel relaxed when you look at it, just take a break. Yeah. Step away. Yep. I do it all the time. So I'll disappear for a week because I just need to take a breather and actually live in my real life, not the online. Yeah, world. So. absolutely. So um, a common fear I hear from a lot of women is that they are afraid to eat without tracking. So I definitely, being in the gym world, a lot of people track macros, they track calories, they track Weight Watchers points, whatever is the, the trend at the moment. And it can be really hard to get away from that because there's some control there. It's an all or nothing mindset. They may talk about feeling like they have trigger foods or they have to burn off their cheats via exercise. All of those, those things we commonly hear from people. So what have you found to be kind of helpful in moving those people towards long-term food freedom? Yeah, I think that you kind of just got to do it. I mean, step one would probably be deleting your calorie tracker. Um, when you do this, it, it's a big step. So congratulations if, you know, you're thinking about doing it and you go ahead and do it tonight. Um, but you'll probably still find yourself mentally tracking the meals that you have. You know, those habits don't just like completely disappear overnight. That's okay. Um, I think that it's important to challenge yourself if you are wanting to move away from tracking and into intuitive eating to eat new things. So it's really hard to calculate the calories of a meal if you are dining out or someone else prepared it. So things like that could be really helpful for getting out of the mentality because you're eventually going to give up. You're going to be like, oh, you know, I don't know how much, you know, oil or whatever they put in that. And so hopefully through that, through challenging yourself with eating, new things and things that you personally can't control, um, that you're able to move away from the calorie counting. Um, and then also just have grace with yourself. You know, if you're like chronic calorie counter, like, you know, I was for so many years, it's just not going to go away. But I think that the main thing is like, don't let the numbers dictate your food choices, right? So like, if you're hungry, you need to eat more, you know, regardless of whether that meal was 300 calories or 1200 calories, your body has unique needs and it changes minute to minute, day to day. So it's important to just honor your hunger regardless. I will also say you'll begin to appreciate how much more time you have in the day, (laughs) measuring and tracking your food, because that was just something that I didn't realize. And my husband actually pointed out because when we were first together, I was super, super heavy into that. And suddenly the difference between me literally pulling out my food scale and weighing the peanut butter to just putting peanut butter on a piece of toast, you know, without having to see how many grams it was. It's so freeing. It is the best feeling. Yes. Yep. So you will regain a lot of just time and mental space that we get so absorbed in, you know, trying to control things that are just not necessary. Our bodies are really smart and they know what they're doing if we give them the opportunity to do so, which it's also okay that it's going to take time and you might have a little slip backwards and we all go through those. But, you know, know your why, know why it's important to you to kind of step away from that phase of your life. Absolutely. And I will say, you know, if you're a mom out there, I think one of my big motivators from, you know, not going back to things like that is like, I am a mom to a little girl and like, I am her biggest role model for all the things. And how would you feel if you're like, getting out your food scale to measure, you know, your portions for dinner or whatever. And you're, you know, or think like Owen, Emma is like, Mommy, why are you weighing your food? Like, do you really want to have to explain that? Like, 
No, I don't. It, it's so true that you are such a role model. I posted something about that today. And, you know, your the words you say to yourself matter. The way you act around food matters. And we are a role model. I won't lie. I was slightly happy in some ways that I had a boy because I was nervous of having a girl because I had had such a struggle. And that's not to say that boys don't need to be given the same role modeling. It does matter. But there was something about me being a girl and going through it and feeling that pressure growing up. And yeah, it's it's scary. It's a big responsibility, but it's also a big motivator for personal change and personal accountability. So that's a great point. I was terrified of having a girl. I like had convinced myself for probably, you know, the first 16 or 17 weeks before we did the anatomy scan that I was having a boy. And I think my husband like kind of sat me down one night and he was like you know you need to like mentally prepare yourself because like it's 50 50 chance like we might have a girl and he was kind of like why do you not want a girl and I mean I knew the answer like I was terrified of just passing on you know all of my disordered eating tendencies to another generation and I think that when we had our anatomy scan and found out that we were having a girl it was like I felt like it was just a sign from God where I was like okay I have got to, you know, get better about this. I've got to like 100% let this go because I have got to be, you know, a better mom for my future daughter. Yeah, that's amazing. And I felt the same way. And I I won't lie, we plan to have another kid. And I still feel that same nerves of, yeah, well, maybe maybe two boys would be just fine because it just feels like it does feels like a lot of responsibility on my head. But as you said, I do not want Owen to see me weighing and measuring food. I don't want him to see me pinching my stomach well, and talking poorly about myself. That still reflects. and Boys are affected you know. too. I, I know men. I have, you know, friends that I know that grew up in households where mom was always dieting and, and they're affected by it. Like their relationship with food, I can tell just in the way that they eat and the way that they talk about food that they have a damaged relationship with food because they grew up in a household where dieting was the norm. Yep, absolutely. So it's important, no matter the gender of your child, that we we do it for ourselves. But it is also just a good reminder that we want to to be better for them because we want them to avoid some of the struggles that we've personally had and and that we see. And society does not exactly set up for success and positive body image. But I think it's starting to move that way a little bit more. So I hope it continues in that trend. Fingers crossed. So what are some of the short and long-term consequences of chronic dieting or living in kind of that constant calorie deficit? Yeah, short term, I think, you know, pretty much anybody can relate to this. Anyone who's been on a diet, um, low energy levels, you know, decreased strength if you're working out, um, thinking about food all the time. That's that's a sign that your body is underfed. If, if you find yourself thinking about food all the time, it's probably because you're hungry. Um, also, irritability, low blood sugar um, and poor sleep. Um, sometimes people are waking up in the middle of the night hungry or they're having a hard time sleeping because they didn't fuel their body well enough throughout the day. And then um, the long-term consequences would be everything that I already just said, um, as well as risk for developing an eating disorder. So there's a statistic that 95% of diets fail. And I would argue that the other 5% of successful dieters are probably picking up a lot of disordered eating tendencies. Um, Also poor body image, lowered metabolism, lowered immunity, feeling cold all the time, irregular or total loss of your period, decreased sex drive, loss of your hair or inability of your hair to grow any longer or any thicker, increased risk for stress, fracture, um, infertility, depression, anxiety, increased risk for osteoporosis, cardiovascular disease, Alzheimer's, and dementia. 
Wow. So, uh, you know, if any of those, especially some of those short-term warnings, you know, the decreased energy, the thinking about food all the time, I think that's a really interesting one. Um, you know, if that's just such a focus is, is a really good thing to, to keep an eye out for mm-hmm. if that's how you're feeling about things. So, you know, what are some of the benefits? I guess a lot of those that you just mentioned are actually reversible from, you know, getting out of the either if you have hypothalamic amenorrhea or if you're just recovering from any of those kind of disordered eating tendencies. Do they tend to improve? Yeah, absolutely. And just to speak, you know, specifically to um, women recovering from HA, because that that's kind of what I have the most knowledge on. But um, it's interesting because so many women who have HA also struggle with um, anxiety and sometimes depression too. And healing from HA almost always improves depression and anxiety also improves your heart health. You're going to have a better relationship with food, improve body image, improve metabolism, restored fertility, which is awesome. Um, improve bone health, um, improve strength and endurance. Most people who are active are able to kind of have better um, records in the gym, personal best, um, personal records, and just better overall quality of life. And I can say personally, my um, relationship with my spouse also got better when I was so crazy anal about everything I eat. I remember the first time we went to a restaurant and I was like, you want to get dessert? (laughs) You're going to eat it? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I'm going to. So, yeah, yeah, it's definitely those those relationships take a a toll when you are kind of so self-focused and focused on food. So it's definitely an improvement to your quality of life, as you mentioned. Absolutely. So let's jump on over to kind of touching on pregnancy specifics since this is a mama related podcast. So let's say a woman's gotten her cycle back and she has fallen pregnant. So how can some of those dietary choices positively or negatively affect her her pregnancy and her postpartum time for both mama and babe? Yeah. I mean, if you're pregnant and you're experiencing a lot of morning sickness, you know, do the best you can. But it is important to be gaining enough weight. This is probably not the message you're going to hear from your OBGYN, but it is really important that you gain enough weight during your pregnancy. So making sure that you're gaining at least 25 pounds during your pregnancy. Most of the weight that you gain um, during pregnancy is actually fluid and then your actual child. Um, So it's important to have a little bit of extra body fat that you gain during you know your um, your pregnancy to support the process of um, lactogenesis making breast milk requires a lot of calories to make milk and then also kind of keep your supply up and under eating and under gaining during your pregnancy can affect you and your baby in a, in a negative way. There's research that supports that women who don't gain enough during their pregnancies are at risk for preterm labor and also that their babies um, can develop um, what's been identified as the thrifty gene. And it's one of the genes that's actually been identified as a predisposition to obesity later in life. I think that's so interesting. I remember reading about that and how, you know, I mean, it kind of makes sense that you're genetically almost, not genetically, but, you know, from from that earliest state, already your body feels in like a starvation. Exactly. Place. Yeah. And so it's going to kind of like not want to let go of anything because it's already been starving. So. Right. Yeah. So it's fascinating. So. Um, let's, let's go through a couple of little quick nutritional myth busting. So first up is the concept of eating for two accurate. I know we hear that a lot during pregnancy. So how much does mama need to eat while growing a little baby? And if she chooses to nurse? Yeah, great question. So I'm going to give you the textbook answer and then I'm going to give you my 
professional opinion and more candid yes, answer. We want, we want your opinion. <laughs> so textbook answer is um, during a first trimester, a woman doesn't need any additional calories. In the second trimester, she needs 340 calories. And in the third trimester, she needs 450 calories. That's great. My advice, don't count calories during your pregnancy. Listen to your body. Your body knows what to do. Um, and it'll gain the appropriate amount of weight that it needs. If that's 25 pounds or 65 pounds, your body is unique and each woman needs to gain a different amount of weight during her pregnancy. I love that. And I think it's so true because I have, I, I found it fascinating talking to other friends about how much they've gained during pregnancy. And I actually, I personally did not find out until the very end and it was accidental. I chose not to weigh um, because it just wasn't a focus I wanted to worry about. But I have friends that gained, you know, far more than the recommended. And I have friends that gained kind of in the normal round and all, all around that. And all of them were healthy. Every one of them was healthy babies. Yep. And honestly, most of them went back to kind of their natural set point weight. If they weren't focused on dieting afterwards, their bodies just naturally went back down to whatever their happy place was before, regardless of if they gained 60 pounds or 25 pounds. So I think again, back to that kind of learning to trust our bodies, listen to our bodies and, and know that we don't have to try to constantly control them. Exactly. So next common myth, or I guess I'd call it a misunderstanding I hear, is regarding gestational diabetes. So can you briefly tell us what it is, how women get it, and can a woman cause it or get it by eating, you know, too much sugar, too much quote-unquote junk food while she's pregnant? I love this question because I actually have a personal experience with it. Um, I So I'll, I'll first explain kind of what it is and, and how it happens. So it, it's a form of diabetes, which basically means that um, – your body is unable to process the amount of um, ins um, glucose in your bloodstream. It's unable to utilize it as energy. And so your blood levels are going to be higher than normal. It is something that can be serious um, to your baby. And so it's important that you, you treat it and get it corrected. But unlike type 1 or type 2 diabetes, um, gestational diabetes is very different. So if you have it during your pregnancy... As soon as you deliver, you don't have it anymore. Um, you might end up having it again with another pregnancy, but it's it's a condition specific to pregnancy. So it's not the same as other forms of diabetes. The other thing is too, unlike type 2 diabetes, which is the most common, which is probably what you think about when you think about diabetes, is it's not really caused or influenced by what you eat um, to a certain extent and then or how much you know exercise you're doing or how much weight you gain so oftentimes I think women think oh I ate so much sugar I caused my diabetes that's completely untrue the reason why you might develop gestational diabetes is the reaction that your body has to the hormones that the placenta is secreting and so it's a hormonal reaction it has very 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 little to do with how much you eat, what you eat, or how much you exercise, or how much weight you gain during your pregnancy. Love that. I know moms can hold a lot of guilt, and it can be kind of stressful going through that and feeling like, did they do something wrong? Is it their fault? And just really important to know that it is not your fault. And yeah. Absolutely. And I remember, you know, because, you know, my pregnancy was also 
the the kind of you know meat of my recovery from HA too. I was eating you know whatever I wanted, and I failed my first um, you know diabetes test. And I was like, oh my gosh, I caused you know all of this eating, all of this you know what I you know I really started to second guess what I was doing. But um, in the end, I did not have diabetes. And even if I did, or even if you do, you're out there and you're listening, like you did not cause. Um, gestational diabetes. It is the way that your body is reacting to the pregnancy hormones. Oh, pregnancy hormones. So much <laughs> fun. <laughs> so during pregnancy, it can also be kind of difficult. I don't know if, did you have morning sickness? Did you have that first trimester? For 17 weeks. Oh, yeah. See, everybody says it's first trimester, and I was the same. I'd say 15 weeks and I started to feel like relative like I might have eaten a vegetable around 15 weeks it was so hard to eat vegetables during that, that whole time thing. I just couldn't do it which is hilarious because I mean I I love vegetables I'm a huge veggie eater and uh-uh I really wanted nothing to, and I didn't even want anything sweet that was something that was interesting I had big aversions against sweet stuff mm-hmm. so yeah but so during that time you know how do you recommend women deal with that I know there's always a lot of concern about if I can't eat, my baby's not going to get enough nutrition. Do you do you recommend people micromanaging that or kind of following an intuitive eating approach? How do you recommend dealing with that situation? Definitely intuitive eating. So it's very interesting that when a woman is pregnant and let's say she's only able, let's say she has horrible morning sickness and she's throwing up often and she can only keep down, you know, saltine crackers, you might think, oh my gosh, I'm not, you know, getting the nutrition that I need. My baby isn't going to grow. Your body actually prioritizes all of the nutrition it gets from whatever you're eating to your growing baby. So mom is more likely to end up with a vitamin deficiency or any sort of, you know, undernourished kind of sign because it's all being kind of prioritized for your baby. So regardless of what you eat, your baby is going to get like the best of the best. So definitely do the best that you can. And also recognize that your first trimester, or in Emma and I's case, first trimester and a little bit beyond, is a very short, short, short amount of time for, um, you know, your life if you're concerned about your health and then also for your pregnancy. And so if you find yourself only able to eat you know, saltine crackers or um, peanut butter waffles was was one of my favorites. The only th- one of the few things I could keep, you know, that sat well with me. I did me. a lot of bagels with cream cheese. Yes, that was, that um, was that felt really good. Yeah, yeah. Just know that it's temporary. Like I remember finally getting over that hump and being like, okay, I can eat vegetables again. And like now I eat vegetables all the time, and it's not a problem. So like, don't freak out. You know, if for you know twelve, thirteen, fifteen, seventeen weeks, all you can eat is you know carbohydrates because it's not a big deal nope enjoy them they're delicious exactly lots of bagels with cream cheese and i still eat a lot of bagels with cream cheese now (laughs) and that was something that was actually kind of nice and freeing as you talked about kind of going through your ha recovery almost during pregnancy it was still a time that you know trying to get past some of those fear foods and whatnot and it's it's a good good time to i guess be more grace give yourself more grace as you're going through these transitions So, all right, there's a lot of pressure to kind of get your pre-baby body back in the early months postpartum. So can you chat a little bit about why your body might hold on to some of those extra fat stores while nursing and how dieting can be kind of a added stress on the body in those early postpartum days? 
Yeah, I and I think that you have actually already spoke a little bit to this already really well, Emma, is just the fact that you think about your friends who gained different amounts of weight during their pregnancy, and yet somehow over time, and, and I do think that time is, is a really important factor that you need to you know, be patient with, but in time, your body will return to a place that it feels safe and healthy and happy. Um, putting a lot of stress on your body to try to get down to pre-baby weight or whatever you're working towards um, is stressful. Stressful. I think that especially, you know, being a new mom, there's so much stress in those first, you know, couple of weeks, probably first year and beyond even still, like the last thing that you need is another added stress. And if you are trying to nurse, um, you know, weight loss, trying to lose weight and, and drastically cutting your calories to achieve this weight loss goal can take a huge hit um, on your milk supply. And I know that women have, you know, dozens of reasons why nursing doesn't work out for them. So I don't mean that in a judgmental way. Um, But I do think that sometimes women struggle with nursing and they complain about, oh, I don't have the supply because they can be preoccupied with trying to lose that weight and they're not nourishing their bodies well enough to maintain a good milk supply. Yeah, absolutely. I know personally, especially my hunger was so high still as me. I'm still nursing. So, um, and I think it's just because your body needs all that extra. And if you ignore those natural hunger cues to try to lose that extra five or 10 pounds or whatever, it's obviously going to have a negative effect on your body. And yes, when it's trying to still feed another human being. So. Yeah. So, I mean, I would say at minimum, your body's probably burning, you know, 300 to 500 calories extra on top of what your normal needs are while you're nursing upward to a thousand calories plus, just depending upon how much milk that you're producing. So just to kind of put some numbers out there, like you do need a lot of calories. And like, I felt like a 17 year old boy with my breastfeeding appetite. Like I would just like out eat my husband at every single meal. And I was just like, whatever, you know, I'm hungry. And you know, I, and I have talked about that a lot. <laughs> you know, we eat twice as much as our husbands and they're kind of looking at us like, whoa, slow down. My husband's always like, eat up, go for it. Yeah. He thinks it's awesome. But yeah, it is really, really funny. It's almost like, what is happening to me? Yeah, it's crazy. It's the craziest feeling. Like I remember just being like, you know, eating what, you know, pre-delivery, like even when I was pregnant, eating what like I felt was a normal portion when I was breastfeeding and then being starving like an hour or two later. And I would be like, what in the world? And I mean, it was just, you know, you got to go with it and it it can feel a little bit foreign, but just know that like your body's working really, really hard to um, make some really, you know, great breast milk for your child. And if you choose to nurse that, you know, it is important to eat enough to keep your supply up. And even if you don't, I think also just remembering your body's healing. It takes a long time for your body to heal and recover. And your body needs extra energy when it is going through that healing process. And even so many times, women get the go-ahead to get back to exercise, normal exercise at six weeks. So then they start jumping in back to the gym. And they're still healing. And they're not getting enough sleep. And it's stressful. So your body really, really needs that extra support through nutrition to just take care of itself and recover and, you know, help you help you thrive. So don't cut yourself short. Excellent, excellent point. Yeah, even if you're not nursing, your body still has increased calorie requirements for healing. That's, you know, something that is a very um, costly process in the body in terms of amount of energy and calories that it requires. So yeah, absolutely. And don't overstress your body in the gym. 
when you're only running on three or four hours of sleep because you are doing a lot more harm than good there. Yep. I had a rule that if I didn't get at least six hours of sleep, then there was no workout happening. That's a great rule. Now I bumped it up a little bit. So if baby's not sleeping and I'm not sleeping, then the gym can wait. So yeah. Well, you have such a, I love following you on social media as you've kind of launched your your business. I loved following you before and seeing all your cute pictures of your kiddo. But you have such just a positive social media precedence and it's really refreshing and you're very real. You share a lot of your personal experience and, you know, really give women uh, some support and some call out that they need to face some of the trouble that they're dealing with. So what does it mean for you to be using social media to support women who are suffering from HA, infertility, food or exercise imbalances, et cetera? Yeah, thanks so much. So I think like the whole kind of intention behind starting my account was just to try to be a positive influence because social media does get a bad rep. And to be fair, there is a lot of things out there that can influence, you know, women in particular in a really negative way. Um, there's also a lot of accounts that are accounts that are just driven by diet culture. They're spreading a lot of fear, a lot of false information about health. And so, um, you know, my my kind of you know intention behind my account is to spread um, you know a real message of body positivity, food freedom, and health you know, mental and physical health over fitness. And I really hope to kind of just shed a light on the fact that health doesn't have a look just because somebody has abs doesn't mean that they're healthy. Um, And I, I think it's also important to, you know, recognize that women who may have lost their period due to HA probably have, you know, some body image issues. I know I did. And um, even though probably at the time I didn't recognize it 100%, but just having a poor relationship with food and exercise in your body is just kind of this awful self-perpetuating cycle. And I've been there and it sucks. And I just want, you know, women to know that it doesn't have to be that way. You can break free of food restriction. You can find a better balance with exercise and eating healthy and you can get your period back and you can definitely be healthy and fertile. So any recommendations for resources women can, um, can look to if they're working on improving their relationship with food? Absolutely. I actually just posted about this on my story today, but the Intuitive Eating Workbook, you can find it on Amazon. It's a really, really great book. And it's, you know, if you're not a reader uh, like myself, um, it's it's really interactive and it kind of um, encourages you to kind of go, you know, deep into why, you know, your diet history and um, helps you to kind of break that diet cycle um, and improve your relationship with food. Um, another big thing, and we've already touched on this tonight, but, you know, just unfollowing those social media accounts that are promoting weight loss or promoting, you know, get lean, um, or even like if people still do this, even because I'm, you know, a little bit older, (laughs) but magazines like fitness magazines, I remember always, you know, always buying, you know, shape or fitness and, um, you know, even though I know that I'm not the same as the woman on the cover, I would be like, oh, like I'm lean, but I'm not that lean. You know, that's just another avenue for comparison. And um, to kind of combat that too, you know, there are some really great Facebook groups out there um, geared towards body positivity and intuitive eating. And then Also, if you find yourself in a place where you're just consumed by all of this and you're really struggling with a poor relationship with food or negative body image, please, please, please get help. There's fantastic counselors and dietitians that can support you in both areas. So remind us again where we can, um, you know, find you online, a little bit about your coaching and nutritional services and how people can connect. 
Yeah, absolutely. So you can find me online on Instagram at I just changed my handle. And I think that it's a little bit easier. And um, (laughs) kind of wait, who is this in my feet? Yep, kind of kind of no nonsense. But it is food.freedom.fertility. And what I do with women is I do one on one coaching to help you let go of food restriction so that you can get your period back for fertility and rediscover food freedom. Love it. Well, we will link to all your services and your Instagram. She is definitely one you want to follow, whether you're dealing with fertility issues or not. I think if you have just any struggles around body image, it's just really refreshing to see some honest chat about it. It's something we don't openly discuss enough because I think a lot of us still have those struggles. So, well, thank you so much for joining us today, Lindsay. We really appreciate it for the second time. Fingers crossed. <laughs> but either way, it was fun to catch up and chat. And thank all the listeners for being here. We really appreciate it. Next up, we're, we've mentioned this a few times, but, you know, which is life. And we've gotten out of order. But we're finally going to get around to chatting some more about food because that's apparently all we talk about on this podcast. And we're going to talk about feeding our families and how we keep all of our bellies full and, and happy. So thanks for joining us. And we will catch up with you all next time. Have a good night.